It says in verse 32, and they were on the road. This is picking up from when Jesus was talking to the rich young ruler. So they then went with him. They were on the road. And as we see, they're just constantly moving in this book. The way that Mark is defining uh, this story is through ongoing just movement. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. It's very important. We'll see why. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, referring to the disciples. It says, and those who followed were afraid. So there's actually like them, and they're amazed because they've been watching Jesus for all this time. And then there's like a group that's kind of following, and they're just like maybe keeping their distance because they're just like, this is, this is frightening, this guy. So you just see some of the atmosphere that surrounded the person of Jesus as he was going and doing miracles and he was correcting the Pharisees and he was speaking to this prominent rich ruler and people are just like, I don't even, I, I can barely even stand to be around the guy. There's just something, there's a gravity here. And it says, that, and taking the 12 again, he, Jesus, began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Pause there. They're going to Jerusalem. They've been going all over. They have had quite a tour of the place. We've seen all the cities. We've shown you some maps. Now, this is the final destination. He is heading to Jerusalem for this reason. Now, listen. After he says, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days, he will rise. Verse 35 says, and James and John, the sons of, sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. It is, there's just snickers around the room. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drank or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. We got, we got this. Hashtag nailed it. And <laughs> Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of God. Amen. Now let's just first look at Jesus talking about his death, yet a third time in the book. I, I suspect Jesus actually might have talked about it more than three times. 
It was so important, so vital, but actually the fact that Mark portrays it three times is very important just from a literary point of view. I had an old screenwriting teacher, Edward D. Lorenzo, and I was a screenwriter. And, and, and when we were learning how to, how to write literary form, he said, if you want people to remember something, say it three times. This is a literary convention. So Mark's sure to, to, to note, maybe he only said it three times, but he said it three times. It was very, very important in the story. And, and Jesus is speaking about his death for the third time. That, that assigns great significance to it, significance to it which we, we know, but, but we've got to pause and go, why is it significant? Why does he keep saying it? I think these guys were like, Jesus, this is all going so well. Can you stop being so morbid? Like, we're, we're crushing it here. Don't you see that? But this death he speaks of, which is, which is very mysterious and, and unfathomable to the disciples, it's not just important, it's the very reason he was born. The first time he talks about it, Peter rebukes him, if you recall. The second time, he says, the disciples, it says, did not understand and were afraid to ask him, probably because of the first rebuke. Then they quickly transition in the second time to a conversation about who's the greatest. <laughs> Here, Mark says nothing about their reaction. I'm just, I'm just wondering, does he say it? And then there's just this kind of like awkward pause <laughs> They will spit on him and mock him and he'll be delivered up to death. And they're like, hmm. <laughs> and then James and John, here's their response. Hey, could you do us a favor? I mean, I, I'm amazed at the grace of Jesus here. But, but actually, we laugh at them. But we have to admit there's something of them in us. We like the favored positions I don't know what it is about Jesus talking about his brutal murder that makes these guys think of how great they are, but it's a theme. Like, it just keeps coming up. That's their next thought? Oh, that's a clue for us. We have to be careful. We have to be careful to understand why in light of who he is, this is the way we might be inclined to think about ourselves. At least they're consistent, which is a lesson for us. We, we need to wrestle with why this is so confusing to the disciples and why it leads them to such foolish responses. That happens every time. He talks about his death, they say something stupid. Yeah. And that is a lesson for us. Why? Why? Why do they do that? And, and, and I would just say, it's because they don't understand the nature of their situation. They just don't. They don't understand this set of circumstances. That becomes more clear as we now get into what they say. James and John. So they ask to be seated at the left and the right hand. And Jesus says, you don't, you don't actually even know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And, and they said to him, we are able. He's like, you don't even understand that question, actually. But even in that, he does not smack him over the head. He he just says, let me just, let me just explain this to you. Like, what is the cup? What is the baptism? It forces us to ask these questions. And, and what are they asking that they don't seem to understand? They, they don't know that Jesus must die to save them. That's what, they don't understand the nature of their situation. 
But from what? Save them from what? From God, actually. Wait, what? Confusing, right? They are in jeopardy. They are right in the line of fire. They're not just at risk, but imminently heading for eternal damnation unless something thwarts the wrath of God against their sin. Do you understand that? I I struggle to grasp it in ways, but they don't understand the nature of the situation and neither do we. I think even as we've been preaching through this gospel of Mark, maybe some of you are like, can we move past the death stuff? We want life and glory and miracles and singing. We love singing. I do too. That's part of it. That is part of it. We can't move past it because Jesus doesn't move past it. He causes us to stop yet a third time and say, this is central to the whole story. The miracles, the glory, the singing, that's all part of it. But we enter that through the door of death. Man, sounds like such a bummer. What a bummer. It's Super Bowl Sunday. Come on, what else you got? But we can't have the good news without the bad news. We have to, we have to look at the bad news if we're gonna behold the good news. Otherwise, the good news just seems like a great other thing that we have in this life, like my car or my house, or friends or a wife or a family. It's not that. It transcends that. In fact, the good news is not good without the bad news. In fact, the good news is way better than we can even think if we only face the bad news. If our sin and his death are at the center of the good news, this thing is not just butterflies and unicorns. (laughs) There is something with great gravity here and they don't understand the nature of their situation. You see, it's clear that the disciples actually thought they were good-ish, right? Not great, not great maybe, but good. You, You a good person? We kind of think the same thing. Consider how John's and, and James and John demonstrate it in this passage. They think they're pretty well positioned to sit right next to Jesus on the throne. They're like, I mean, maybe we, don't, we can't take the middle seat, but we could certainly take the side seats. We're pretty good. Right there, cozied up next to Jesus, radiating their own glory. Let's not look down their noses at them. Pretend you think the same thing, just for a moment. Pretend you think that you've done some bad things, but it's not as bad as some people, right? And and you're entitled to a decent position up there. Especially since you try to do the right thing and you're a pretty solid citizen. I mean, come on. You're a good person. What a dangerous phrase in the context of the gospel, actually. Now let's pretend something else. Let's pretend sin is is sin. Regardless of what sin it is, God can't stand for any of it. So whether you told a little white lie or murdered or committed adultery or cheated on your taxes, it's a level playing field. If, If you think that the murderer should have to pay, then you think you should have to pay. But we kind of rank, don't we? 
we put ourselves in a certain order that often lands us kind of in a decent spot, just like James and John. They're not the only ones. Mark says, and when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Most scholars agree that why is this? They didn't think of it first. These guys are jockeying for position like, God, dang it. We could have had those slots. Not because it was so wrong. It was so right, according to them. And they nailed it. We like to order ourselves. Kids do this. You seen kids do this? How old are you? Eight. Okay, I'm nine, so I'm better than you. <laughs> Ten. Crud. Okay. I'm not the top, but I'm second. Eleven. Ah. Oh. Right? Like, even kids do this. I had a friend who used to raise venture capital money to make movies, and he would sometimes be sitting in a room with billionaires who could fund movies. And he said, it's crazy, Eric. The guy worth 13 billion talks the most. The guy who's worth 10 billion, he talks just a little less than that guy. Forget the guy with 1 billion, he just sits there and is quiet. Because we just rank, we look around the room and go, how do I rank among the group? And, and, and we're kind of aiming for better. And the thing is, we don't deserve to sit in the place of honor. Is my sin as bad as hers? Is it yeah. Not quite. Actually, each and every one of our sins required that we be banished from the presence of God forever. This is what we have to understand. This is what, this is the bad news. You can only understand how bad the situation was for you when you file yourself with the worst of the worst when you recognize your sin is not any more acceptable to God than the most despicable of people. Murderers, abusers, rapists. I know this is not the Super Bowl message you are looking for, but he's talking about something that if we can actually get it right and understand, this is how we abide in him, is to understand the very things that he understands in terms of the way that the world Works when you recognize your sin is not any more acceptable to God than the most despicable of people. Actually, that's when you understand the situation. This is the situation James and John are asking to sit at the right and the hand, left hand of Jesus. He's so kind to them. He's like, you don't, you don't get it, I see. Pretty good, they thought. I came across this quote that kind of helps us understand this from the context of the whole Bible. We're reading a book in the young adult group called Defined. It's about our identity in Christ. And Stephen and Alec Kendrick say, every rescue throughout scripture, the shepherd David being rescued from the paw of the lion, and oh, I wrote link there too, I don't know why. <laughs> and the paw of the bear, Daniel being rescued from the lion's den, his friends being rescued from the fiery furnace. Each one of these stories foreshadows the gospel story of Jesus going to the cross to rescue us. From what? From what danger? From the greatest danger of all, from the just and holy wrath of God on sin. This is the cup that actually Jesus is talking about. Throughout the Old Testament, we have moments where it talks about the cup of God's wrath against sin. Now, you may be going, oh, I'll, all right, I'll trudge through this part. Um, I'll muscle through to get to the, where's the happy ending, Eric? I'm like, no, 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 actually, 
if we can slow play this for a minute, walk through it, it is incredibly liberating. It's hugely good news. It's not, have you ever fallen off a boat and then somebody grabbed you, oh, sorry, yeah, geez, you almost got, you got a little wet there. You, the fact that you were rescued under those circumstances is not actually very good. It's fine, it's decent. Good, you were just, everybody was around, no big deal. If you fall off a cruise ship at night in the middle of the ocean and you are treading water for 25 hours, how good is the good news of your salvation? That's the situation that we were in. That's the situation that we are in until we lay hold of the life preserver of Jesus Christ. That's the bad news that tells us that the good news is better than we ever could have imagined. When you were just about to slip below the the surface of the water and a hand reached out and grabbed hold of you. Now that's really good news because you were done. You were gonna be lying at the bottom of the ocean. So those little feltboard stories with the lion and the fire, they weren't fairy tales. God was on his way to satisfy his justice and destroy us, but that same God, because he loved us so much, provided a means to save us. He was full of wrath because we are as guilty as you can imagine. I'm sorry, but we just have to sit with the bad news if we're gonna understand the good news. This is why Jesus had to die. That's why Peter rebuked him. He did not get this thing. This is why these guys are like, hey, can we sit up there in glory with you? Like, you don't even understand what you're talking about. Kindly. Why is this? God is love. He created an earth, a place, a world for everyone to exist in his perfect love. This is what he wanted. He had a dream of this. He had a vision of the world and this earth that nobody died, nobody cried, nobody was in pain, nobody killed each other. There was no sickness, there was no disease. He created that for us. And we, because of the will that he gave us, actually wanted more. We wanted just one thing more. Adam and Eve said, that's good, but actually we want more. Here, James and John, the same nature is at work in them. They don't realize what they've been given and they actually just want more. I wish I could explain this better and and make you understand. I do not understand, but it's like gravity and oxygen, do you under, how many people in here understand exactly how oxygen works to keep us alive? There are a few, there are a few. Yeah, there we go. We've got a few, we've got some doctors, we've got some vets in here. Most of us don't. Josh says no, I don't. Do you understand how gravity works? Like, do you understand the physics of gravity? Very few people better raise their hand on that one. Some do. But either way, most of us go, we just see these things in operation. We look around and we go, when I walk into a room with a little less oxygen, or if I'm underwater for too long, or if there was no gravity, I would be sprayed into oblivion. And we're grateful for these things and we wanna make sure they're still around. Look around, do you think there's sin? 
We are destroying each other. It does not take a rocket scientist to look around and see the effects of sin and go, I don't know how all this happened exactly. I understand the story of the Bible. I understand that the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I don't have it all worked out, but I know enough to know that this is true. The situation was dire and he must die. This is the cup we would have had to drink the cup of God's wrath had it not been for Jesus. It's the cup against sin that needed to be satisfied. There can't be crime without punishment. There can't be a criminal without a sentence. That's justice. Aren't we grateful for it? But we cannot escape it ourselves. We have to sit in the bad news to truly enjoy the good news. Jesus says you will participate but the beauty is that it will be under the protection of what now I am about to do. That's the beauty. The thing you don't understand, and Peter tried to talk me out of, we're not good. That is why he had to die. It's why we can be humble. Yeah. <laughs> if you ever struggle with humility, just go for that one. Stephen Lee writes for Desiring God. He said, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us so that he could extend the cup, the cup of God's fellowship to us. See, a cup in, 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 in biblical terms means one of two things. It's talked about as the cup of God's wrath, but it's also a cup of sharing in someone's destiny. When you actually share a cup with someone, you are sharing in the blessings also of that person. This is how they would uh, celebrate uh, and, and, and make uh, agreement around a partnership is around a cup. So it is the cup of God's wrath, but it's also the cup of fellowship. It might include suffering, but not wrath. We don't get wrath anymore. Now we get God. We get the sweet, satisfying reality of his eternal fellowship in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. This is the cup we drink now and forever. This is the cup we offer to those who don't know him yet, imploring them in God's mercy, mercy come, drink this cup with us because Jesus drank that cup for us. Charles Spurgeon, he says this thing that I think sums it up so well. While others are congratulating themselves, I have to sit humbly at the foot of the cross and marvel that I'm saved at all. This is a man who understands the nature of the situation. We're having baptisms on Easter, speaking of baptisms. And they're a symbol of this baptism. These are some of the sacraments, the embodiments of our faith. We're gonna take the cup later, but we're gonna baptize on Easter because we identify with Jesus being overwhelmed, flooded, and immersed in his God-given destiny for our sake. That is why we baptize. Some people have come and said, I was baptized, I didn't even really know what it means. Oh man, let's be very aware that it's all about this moment right here. Will you be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized? It does to a degree speak of our own suffering, but it actually also speaks of our identity with what he did for us. Verse 43 uses the word servant. Verse 44 uses the word slave. It's a touchy word in the age of human trafficking and with a history of slavery. Now, we, we know no one should be enslaved by, by a man against his or her will, but this is calling us all to choose service, even slavery of a certain kind. 
to humanity, a posture and disposition that puts everyone else before ourselves. Whew. Preaches well. How do we live it? Only by his power and grace we have to keep asking because actually we will not be inclined to do so. And we don't do it out of a lack of self-esteem. You know, I'm just a, a worm of a person. You know, it's out of a perfect understanding that we are loved by God and that love is literally all we need. Tim Keller says, it's not thinking more of yourself or less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Amen. I love that. Our service to people can't come out of some codependency trying to make up for what we lack and, and pleasing people to justify our existence. No, our service is out of an overflow of the abundance we have serving because he is already pleased with us. That's why we do it. The only way we can die or suffer in a healthy way is to become fully alive to him so that we can find greater comfort than any discomfort we will experience as we follow Jesus. Another commentator says, sadly, James and John fail to see the pathway to glory is always the pathway of suffering. Before the crown, there is a cup of suffering. Before the blessings that flow, there is a baptism that overwhelms and drowns. If you are here today going, gosh, that sounds a little like my experience, you are not alone. The Lord is bringing you through into a place of his glory, his way. And part of that is just the process that we need to recognize. I think there are some helpful assumptions that we can learn from these guys. One of them is, I do not fully understand Jesus. Oftentimes we're like, yep, no, I got it locked in. I've been, you know, a Christian for 40 years. Pretend you do not know. Assume that you do not fully understand him. And you can just go, okay, Lord, what am I missing? Help me. The other thing is I'm aiming for the wrong goal. Like these guys are like, that's the goal, left and right. Why are they aiming for that? Because, because actually there's an assumption that, that is helpful that I'm out for my own glory. Don't think you're exempt from this. It will help you if you go, maybe in this situation I'm out for my own glory. What is motivating me here? I talked to a guy this week, a young man, married, young kids, said, I've come to realize that there is no way for me to process a decision in my life without first and foremost considering myself, without prioritizing myself. This is my operating system. Without him to come in and help me and open my eyes to what it looks like to serve others, to be a slave to all, that will be my default. I am out for my own glory. Verse 45 says, for the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John Piper says, Mark 10, 45 is what turns Christianity into the gospel. A man who died but actually died in our place. I struggle with that. He should be first among you, should be slave to all. Because actually, in, in our team, uh, I, I'm, I'm referred to as the lead pastor. I actually wrestle with that title. I don't know what to do with that sometimes. Sometimes I'm referred to as a first among equals. Well, that just tells me that I, I must be a slave to the team. It doesn't tell me I'm top dog. It doesn't. Jesus is like, it works like this. Yeah. I'm like, wow, am I, am I, do I live that way? Guys, please tell me. Please tell me, like, if I'm not living that way, like, please let me know, because that's the way I want to live, but I find it hard. 
He just turns everything upside down in the most helpful of ways and he tells us what the nature of the situation is. This thing is freeing when we can truly understand the good news in light of the bad news. This thing makes us leap up and down for joy. This thing brings incredible humility. This thing motivates us to go and tell everyone that actually the oxygen is running out, that gravity is lifting. Actually, the time is short. And actually, because of the nature of the situation, you must reach out and grab hold by faith of the rescue that he has provided. Otherwise, you'll be out of air and you'll be scattered into oblivion as if gravity was no longer. Doesn't that create an urgency for us? Let's read this final bit as we come into close. Mark 46, beautiful way to sum up this little piece. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, because he couldn't see, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? Does that sound familiar? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. What a beautiful picture of Jesus as he demonstrates all of this self-sacrifice for somebody else on the way to his own death. Can you imagine what would be on your own mind, in your own heart, when you know you're about to be mocked and spit on and delivered up to death? How does he have the capacity to go, let me just stop? There's a whole caravan of people following him. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. wait a second. See, I think there are some unhelpful assumptions that he just turns upside down right here. One, God is distant. Two, God doesn't care. Three, God doesn't see me. Four, God doesn't have time for me. Five, God is angry. Six, I need to do something to get God to love me. All he does is call out. All he does, and this is only the second time that somebody recognizes him as the Messiah, the son of David. The first was Peter, and here it is. Man, he's blind, but in some ways he sees. And you just see Jesus stop and give him sight. Yes, it's good that he gave the blind man sight, but he was giving us an example of what we all need. We are all blind. We are all hiding under a cloak <laughs> meant to keep us safe and warm. And here he thrusts that off and says, that which I leaned on before, I no longer do, and I come and I'm asking you to redefine my world. Help me to see. All of these unhelpful assumptions are countered by blind Bartimaeus. He stops on the way to his own death to care for him. It's amazing, you know, the, the, the sons of thunder asked for extraordinary glory he asked only for ordinary health. 
This is the last healing in the Gospel of Mark. And it was to help him see. When we are inclined to ask for circumstantial things, can this encourage us to ask, Lord, help me see. Help me understand. I am inclined to ask for the wrong things, aim for the wrong goal, and not to understand you. And let me order understanding and seeing. That's what I truly need. I just want to look at these words. Take heart. Get up. He is calling you. Take heart. Get up. He is calling you. Maybe you're here today and you are laying down because it's been a long road and you have trusted Jesus or you, you had a faith at one point and, and actually, don't you know, he's not casting you off. It's like, it, this doesn't say be depressed, stay down. He doesn't care. It says take heart, take heart. Have you diminished in heart? Take heart, get up. He's calling you. We were all blind until Jesus gave us sight. We were poor beggars until he saved us as our ransom. We brought to him nothing but our weakness and need. And he graced us with his power and blessing. Praise God Jesus stopped and had time for Bartimaeus. Praise God Jesus had time for you and me. Nothing has changed in 2,000 years. Jesus still stops for anyone who calls on his name. And like poor, blind Bartimaeus, no one is disappointed in what he does. There is hope for anyone who in faith looks to Jesus. Justice required that God poured out his wrath, but he's always been providing ways to thwart his wrath and keep us protected. That is what every sacrifice of the Old Testament was. It was meant to protect us from him from the sin that must get its just desserts, and here it does in Jesus.